The next hour will inform you on how cybersecurity is one of the most significant threats to our national security, as well as the battle that cybersecurity experts are undergoing every day on your behalf to protect you, your families, and your data. Welcome to Task Force 7 Radio with your host, the president and CEO of Task Force 7 Radio and Task Force 7 Technologies, George Reedus. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 86 of Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm your host, George Reedus. I want to emphasize that all opinions expressed on this show are my own and not that my present or past employers. I've never disclosed any sensitive intelligence that I've been privileged to or result to my current employment. And I will never knowingly disclose any classified information related to any security clearances I presently hold or have held in the past with the United States government. And nothing I say during this show should be construed as legal or financial advice. So before we get started, I want to remind our listeners, you can go online at the Cybersecurity Hub and read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at their very cool website, www.cshub.com. The Cybersecurity Hub is an online news source for global cybersecurity professionals and business leaders who leverage technology and services to secure their networks. The media professionals at the Cybersecurity Hub are dedicated to providing the latest industry news, thought leadership, and analysis in the cybersecurity space. So again, to check out a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news, go to the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. So, I hope everyone had a wonderful Memorial Day week to kick off the summer. It just doesn't seem to, to stop raining here on the East Coast, man. I'll tell you, we are getting pounded with rain. Um, it's, it's pretty much almost nonstop. We have to cancel so many baseball practices. It's terrible. And uh, my voice is cracking um, from the games and all the yelling and screaming that's going on that, uh, with the kids. So it's a lot of fun, though, man. It's a great time of year. But, man, I wish it would stop raining a little bit. <laughs> right out of the gate today, I, I want to thank all of you so much for listening to Task Force 7 Radio. We had a record month in terms of listenership last month. And what's amazing about that is that we played one less show than we usually do because of the holiday week. So that made it a little more amazing for me. And um, that was uh, really special. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to Task Force 7 Radio. We're in our 86th episode now. And it's been a wonderful ride so far. It's only going to get better, folks. I really feel that a lot of momentum here, and I, I, you know, I'm feeling the love from all of you out there. Thanks so much. The growth of the show has been 100% organic. I mean, we um, we haven't really got into the digital marketing piece of what we want to do yet. Um, not really nothing at all. I mean, we made some posts on social media. I'm, I'm sure a lot of you uh, see us on social media. That's about the extent of our uh, advertisement or marketing of, of the show and and you know it's pretty much been on a lot of personal accounts on a personal account I got a decent following on LinkedIn and some other accounts but the growth of the show really has come via word of mouth and the success of the show can be attributed to you to all of our loyal TF7 radio following so again I really appreciate all of you so much thanks so much for listening of course our producers had off on Memorial Day so we took the opportunity to post an encore episode for the holiday last week. We posted episode number 36, How Cybersecurity Can Enable Digital Transformation, with my good friend, William Beer. Now, William is a partner with EY's Cybersecurity Advisory Services, and we got to talk to him about how the cybersecurity domain can work to enable business in a digital transformation era. And I think this is really important because everyone's going through this digital transformation. I think you heard Ariel say in a few episodes ago that like 80, 85% of uh, a company's assets these days are, are in digital um, format. So this is one of my personal favorite episodes of TF7 Radio. As William gave his expert opinion on the digital and fintech driven disruption and transformation occurring across the entire industry. And he also talked about the new technologies he's seeing in the digital space that are disruptive and what kind of impact they're having on cybersecurity in general across the market. And he also discussed the challenges he sees his clients facing every day in the, in the cybersecurity space, which is cool because, you know, he has so much exposure to the market from his position at EY. And so for him to hear, you know, to hear him say it and how it's really going down out there is, uh, is good to hear, right? It's good to hear. It's a, it's a, it's a learning point for me, and I'm sure a lot of people uh, getting, take away a lot from it. We also got into a discussion about digital trust, uh, which is really cool. It's the importance of speed and agility in cybersecurity. We're always talking about speed, 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 right? 
So speed is a, a, an important part of what we do here in the cybersecurity uh, model and uh, all of your professions. And in, in the importance of managing third and fourth party risk, which is huge right now, huge. So it was a great Encore episode to post last week. And if you missed it, you know, don't fret. It should be right at the top of your TF7 radio episode library. So we had all this and much, much more with special guest William Beer, partner with EY Cybersecurity Advisory Practice on May's Encore episode of TF7 Radio. That's episode number 57 of Task Force 7 Radio. So check it out. Um, well, if you're listening to us live on Voice America right now, or maybe someone just sent you a link to this episode, you might be wondering how you can listen to all the previous Task Force 7 radio episodes on playback. I still get this question. I, I, I'm wondering when, it, when it's, when it's going to slow down, but until it does, I'm still going to tell everybody that you can listen to us on 11 different playback mediums now. And people usually have preferences on which ones they like. We made it easy for you to find all the playback mediums on TF7 radio. You can just go to tf7radio.com. You hit the subscribe button at the top of the right of the, of the homepage, and it'll take you right there. And most importantly, you can subscribe right to our show from the TF7 radio site, which is really the best way to stay connected to the entire TF7 family. And this way, you'll get all the TF7 radio updates right from the site, and, and the site gets you the more, uh, well, it gets you more information on the extras and the, and the encore episodes, like the one I just mentioned with William. And anything that we got going on here, news and events, I mean, it's all right there. So it's at your fingertips. Any episode you want, at your convenience, 24-7, 365, folks, anytime, anywhere around the globe. And as always, whatever you do, when you go to the site, don't forget to subscribe. We love it when you subscribe. So we've got a great show for you this week. Uh, we're going to have Kate Fazzini on the show with us this evening. And uh, she's been on the show before. And we're excited to have her back. Uh, she is a cybersecurity reporter for CNBC, one of the biggest TV networks on the planet. And before joining CNBC, she most recently covered cybersecurity for the Wall Street Journal in uh, Wall Street Journal Pro Cybersecurity. So prior to that, she worked in the cybersecurity field and roles at Promontory Financial Group, as, as well as with J.P. Morgan Chase, a company where we did work together uh, over what I affectionately call the Death Star on Park Avenue. Oh, man, it was a great place to work. I, I love J.P. Morgan Chase. A bunch of great people there. So Kate holds a master's degree in cybersecurity strategy from the George Washington University, and she's also serves as an adjunct professor in the Applied Intelligence Program at Georgetown University, as well as the cybersecurity program at the University of Maryland. All right, so we, and she's got some big news this week. So this is kind of a, this is kind of a special week, and she's got her new, her new book, it's called The Kingdom of Lies, Unnerving Adventures in the World of Cybercrime. That it's out right now. It's available right now at your favorite bookstore. You can go anywhere. I think you can just go right on Amazon and get it if you want, which is like what most people do, I think. But it's there. It's a, it's a fantastic book. Um, I've read it. Um, and it's, uh, you know, we've got a big party coming up in a couple of weeks. So I'm excited for the book party. But we're going to talk to her about that and a lot, lot more this evening. So ladies and gentlemen, it's my pleasure to welcome Kate Fazzini to the show. Kate, welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio. Thank you, George. Thank you for having me. Hey, I'm really excited to have you here. We're going to talk about all kinds of cybersecurity topics here that you cover on a regular basis. Um, and it's just great to have someone like you on the show because we can cover a whole wide range of, uh, of uh, issues around cybersecurity in one single episode. So let's start off, let's mm -hmm. kick it off with the Mueller report. And I know that that's on, I mean, every single day on every, every single channel that we see. But let's talk about it from a, a different perspective. I mean, what does it say that is important to cybersecurity? And, and are we missing the point of cybersecurity professionals of the whole thing by just fo focusing on the, the politics of it? Yeah, I, I think we're absolutely missing the point. And it's something that I've written about. Um, I mean, if you go and you read the Mueller report, um, I think a lot of people, when that report was released, went and they, they skipped right to the parts about uh, obstruction of justice and collusion. They wanted to see what was said there. But in the very beginning of this report, there's this very long narrative about what happened um, to both a little bit about the DNC, but a lot of what happened to the Republican National Committee, uh, the Trump campaign, as far as uh, how, how Russia had this really long-term, years-long campaign to um, infiltrate social media, to make headway with even people within the campaign without their knowledge, without them knowing about it. Um, and it was something we just totally weren't ready for. And 
we're still not focused on it. Um, this was the thing that, that actually caused all of the problems in the election, and we are not focused on it. We're looking at all of the other parts of that report. I think that's the most interesting part. Yeah, you know, I have to agree. And another thing, too, is uh, I'm not sure that, you know, it was, at least I, I read it somewhere, I think it was in, in one of the indictments, that they didn't intend on, you know, one party winning over the other as much as they wanted to disrupt the entire election and turn the American public against each other. Absolutely. And then that's in in the Mueller report and in the the indictments that were handed down of uh, 12 Russian hackers um, uh, earlier last year. uh, It was really clearly spelled out that they started doing this um, as far back uh, as uh, 2014, uh, maybe even earlier, and and really kind of ramping up before, you know, well before Donald Trump was ever a, a candidate for president. And what do I mean by ramping up? I mean, they, they went out got social media accounts, you know, within um, Russia's intelligence unit. Uh, they, they formed plans. They had people working on this for a very long time. They became established. They became established voices on social media. They became um, established personas. And that took a really, really long period of time that, that went well, um, you know, before and after this election. So uh, it's, it's just really interesting that you're, you're talking about a many years long campaign, um, a, a, and by campaign I mean a, a hacking campaign or a social engineering campaign um, that, you know, it, it just, it's so difficult to see that when our news cycle um, is, is very much a, a minute to minute, hour to hour type of cycle. This was a long-term plan. Um, and it just, it's very clear that even though DHS and, and some of their agencies are doing things, Congress is just not focused on this. Legislators just aren't focused on actually fixing the problem uh, that, that arose in this election. Yeah, I mean, we just had some really high profile uh, guests on the last few episodes mm-hmm. that have experience in the NSA, experience in the United States military operations. And they said you know, one of the main reasons why it's so easy for other countries to launch these types of uh, information operations against us is because the media is, in some cases just, you know, speaks about these things these in political ways. Like you just said, if you look at the news mm-hmm. cycle, it gets talked about in a, in a political way and not really in a, in a cybersecurity way. We don't focus on the cybersecurity issue of it, uh, which uh, we really should. Um, and that's really interesting. And so, and there's a lot of other stuff going around too. I mean, I see this in Baltimore, I've been following this a little yeah. bit in Baltimore, what's going on with the officials, and they blame their recent uh, malware attack, their ransomware attack on the NSA. And, it, and mm-hmm. it's interesting because it, it, it begs the question, what does this say about the extreme disconnect between federal, state, and local institutions on our cybersecurity posture? I mean, it's, it's obviously a, a huge disconnect, and I'm, I'm glad you spoke with some folks of the NSA um, because they, they t- discussed with you the disconnect with media coverage, but also there's a big disconnect between the, the people getting attacked and who are they to look to for help. Um, you know, in this case, we're talking about a municipality, Baltimore, um, Atlanta was another targeted, uh, a targeted um, uh, municipal uh, of another big city. Um, you have the secretaries of state who are looking to, um, they might be politically aligned in some way, trying to protect their own uh, elections infrastructure. Who, who is the central body that uh, at the federal level is going to help them to do that. I mean, there's many different ones, right? It's very disparate. Um, you have DHS that, that serves a very uh, particular role. You have NSA, who's probably not going to be having a lot of open discussions um, with, with, those, uh, with those agencies, or, or certainly not with uh, the corporations that, that serve them. Um, and, and there's just not a lot of working together there where, you know, now we're at a point where we have a city blaming the NSA for a criminal cyber attack. Um, it's, you know, that's, that's something that's not working. Yeah. Something doesn't seem right to me. So this, it, this, uh, eternal blue that was, mm-hmm. rec- uh, you know, was developed by NSA's TAO group that mm-hmm. was leaked by shadow brokers back in 2017. But yeah. they, after being alerted by the NSA, Microsoft issued a patch for that. 
And I think yes. that was that was back it's in March. It's a two-year-old too. patch. Yeah. Um, it's uh, it's it's really it's difficult to understand how such a large city um, didn't have those patches in place. But it's certainly not unprecedented. Um, we we see uh, eternal blue causing problems in a, in a lot of different places. Um, but as far as anybody having a handle on how well are these um, how well are these cities patched? How well are our states patched? How well, how, um, how well have our elections agencies been doing their patches? Um, you know, do we have a really good grasp of that? I think that probably not. Do we need to? I, I don't know. I, I mean, I think there's definitely people who would say we don't want more federal control over those things. But um, when you have a whole city, a major U.S. city shut down for a week or two, uh, I think it, it, you have to start asking a few more questions. Yeah, absolutely. So you have some code that's leaked that exploits a vulnerability, and then the, and the, the NSA warns people about this code, that can, and then the vulnerability that's there, and then the patch is released, and then people don't have basic cyber hygiene to patch right. their networks to prevent themselves from getting you know, injured and attacked by, by, this, by this malware. So it begs the question, I mean, we go back to this again, basic cyber hygiene seems to be the culprit more... Times than ninety nine percent of the time, I I, I don't know. That's <laughs> I make that statistic up, but it's almost always a similar story. Whether whether the, the exploit was developed by the NSA or not, of course, um, it's always a similar story, right? Whatever the vulnerability was, whether it was Apache Strats and um, and Equifax missed the boat, uh, and, and they have a breach, you know, a couple of months after that that vulnerability is discovered. Um, that certainly wasn't developed by the NSA. Um, you know, it's it, it, it's it's just a common story. And what can we do to make that part of it better? I mean, what can you do to improve the cyber hygiene of um, all of these really important important groups? It's it's amazing. So it's 2019. We have an entire city that's basically shut down. All right, they can't. There's there's a lot of services that can't be provided. People's lives can be put in danger. Um, whether it's a you know, emergency service or medical service or police services, there's a lot of, you know, there's paychecks and payroll. There's all kinds of things going on. I don't know the extent of the entire um, the malware attack. I know that it's pretty, pretty significant. What does this say about the technical infrastructure of our, of our big cities, uh, of government agencies? And, and what, what is the way forward? How, how do we communicate them? Do they even have the resources to, to do what they need to do in terms of basic cyber hygiene? And I think that's that's the question. What is the way forward? Um, you know, there's a number of so, so it has this this group of uh, industries that it counts as critical infrastructure, right? And they they get a little bit more attention. Um, there's just a little bit more. Some some of them get attention from actual regulations, especially if you're in financial services or in the energy sector. Um, but these uh, industries are very siloed. They're really um, it's it's waste, it's water treatment, it's energy, it's financial services, um, it's uh, facilities. So like Madison Square Garden is, you know, in one of those categories. Um, but it's not something like a city that might actually own, you know, some of those things, um, may not own some others of them, uh, but unites all of these pieces together. So it's like we have the silos we are doing something to, uh, you know, help with hygiene, with best practices, with coming in for um, assistance when it's needed. Um, but we're missing all of the things in between. And as you know, with cyber attacks, they are really commonly going at these kind of tough spots in between, the Achilles heel that's, that's connecting everything together. So what do you think this means for the enterprise and private business? I mean... You know, we see these weaknesses in the government. They make big headlines, whether it's Atlanta or Baltimore, because they they literally could put people's lives in danger in some in some respects, in some instances, right? Now, in, in private enterprise, not always the case. Um, not always, it's not always life and death decisions that are being made. But what does it mean, and how does that translate into the into the private sector? Well, I think I I think I might disagree with you there on one thing, and that is that so much of the private enterprise is is plugged in to the municipal side of things. So much of it is plugged into the government side of things. Um, you know, these all of these uh, all of these cities are run on 
software, right? They all have third-party providers. Um, you see a lot of breaches, at, you know, resulting even even in the government level uh, from third parties. So I think that um, there just needs to be a little coming together of sharing information a little bit better than we already are. I mean, we have the FSIs, we have um, the information sharing organizations, but I. I just don't think it's enough. Um, maybe it's, you know, you, you spoke some folks from the NSA. Um, certainly they deal with a lot of uh, classified information that never gets uh, filtered down um, to the private sector. Um, I'd ask you, what, what, what have they said they're doing on that end? Are they declassifying more information? Um, what's, uh, what's their take on this? So I don't think I don't think that people are declassifying more information. That's just my personal opinion. <laughs> no, I don't no. think that's happening. You know, still they hate doing that, yeah, don't right, they? <laughs> right. uh, hey, look, very very good points. Very good points. Okay, folks, we got to transition into commercial break. So hey, if you're a social media junkie, don't forget to follow TF Seven Radio on your favorite social media platform. Follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, and even Instagram by searching at TF Seven Radio, and you'll be connected to the extended TF Seven family on your favorite social media platform right away. For any inquiries regarding sponsoring the show or suggestions for topics or guests, please email me directly at george.redis at tf7radio.com. That's george.redis at tf7, that's with the number 7, radio.com. I want to remind our audience that we're building the world's premier cybersecurity professional network, Task Force 7. I'm really excited about this, folks. Tune in over the next several months for more information on this much-needed and much-awaited-for network. We're going to solve some problems together. I promise you, Task Force 7, get in the fight. We're going to pause for some quick messages from our sponsors, and then we'll be right back with our special guest, CNBC cybersecurity reporter Kate Fazzini. Whatever you do, don't go away. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Account takeover is the fastest growing form of cyber attack. Criminals exploit compromised accounts for financial gain, often causing irreparable and long-term damage to finances and reputation. Many companies think they're protected. They believe using a password manager, multi-factor authentication, behavior-based technology, password rotations, or solutions that scan the deep and dark web is enough. Yet the account takeover problem only continues to get worse. SpyCloud combines human intelligence and automated technology to prevent account takeover for your customers and employees. We recover stolen credentials early in the account takeover lifecycle before the credentials are sold on dark forums. Check your exposure for free at spycloud.com. As CISOs manage known malware attacks, they also contend with the unknown unknowns. With 24-7 Hacker Innovation, where do CISOs place their next security investment bet? Find the answer with Signet. With forums and public and private partnership dinners in Toronto, London, Singapore, Tokyo, and across the U.S., Signet is a mission-focused, purpose-driven global community advancing the next generation of cybersecurity solutions. As an entrepreneurial ecosystem super connector, Signet brings innovators, top cybersecurity professionals, solution providers, investors, and government executives into a collaborative alliance. Join Signet's global community to empower your organization and the industry to defeat hackers with cybersecurity's next generation of innovation. Learn more at security-innovation.org or Google Sinet, S-I-N-E-T. We're not your typical security vendor. In fact, the script for this ad was written by an engineer, not a marketing guru. Because at SOC Prime, we're focused on features that matter to our users. Our threat detection marketplace has over 30,000 cross-platform SIM and EDR rules. Our downloadable Sigma, Yara, and Snort detections can be deployed with just a few clicks. And our map to the MITRE attack framework, enabling quicker and more strategic detection. With support from SOC Prime's veteran team and our community of contributors, we bridge the blue team skills gap and cover emerging threats with daily releases of new content. 
Nearly three quarters of the threat detection marketplace is free to download. Register for free at tdm.sockprime.com with promo code RADIO2019 to receive one free key to unlock premium content. That's tdm.socprime.com. Promo code RADIO2019. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's Task Force 7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. We're back with our special guest, CNBC cybersecurity reporter, Kate Fazzini. So, Kate, uh, let's talk about something that uh, that is still related to election security, which we keep talking about, and you know the, mm-hmm. the interference with other foreign governments, but and that's social media, and they use social media in these attacks against us all the time. And what do you think the role of social media companies should be in our overall cybersecurity? What 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 you know what role do they have overall? Yeah, well, it's it's so interesting now that, that social engineering itself has become such a huge piece of the puzzle. Um, and you see after the election uh, and, and some scandals that, that, face, that Facebook saw with Cambridge Analytica, uh, a lot of the blowback coming to them and their reaction being uh, really a, a pretty significant one, I think, where, you know, they, they are frequently updating us on how many of these troll accounts um, that they're removing. Um, and this is sort of separate from some of the other things they've been removing that, that they consider incitement. Um, so I'm speaking only about what, what the fake accounts and the Russia-based accounts that, are, that, are, that seem to be a part of a, you know, widespread um, cybersecurity initiative. Um, and it, I think that we're putting a little bit too much faith in social media companies to take care of this problem for us. Um, it's it's interesting that they're playing such a central role and they're they're taking the reins and doing all of these things when it it seems like that should be the responsibility of either the federal government to say you know here's exactly what what we should be doing or uh, the people themselves to try to you know make a little bit better decisions about what kind of stuff that they are following. And I think that um, it also is important to remember that a lot of these platforms have been built on uh, algorithms that are going to favor discord. So the angrier people get, the more debate there is, that's considered engagement. And that's, they measure engagement. And if something's a really high engagement, then it's it does well. It gets lots of uh, views. It gets put to the top of pages. And that's just a model that is very difficult to alter. A lot of their products are based on that model. And I just don't see it happening anytime soon. And that's where the social engineering piece comes from. You get people who just throw a grenade into every conversation, and that's what drives the conversation, and that's what keeps them at the top. You know, so it's interesting. I don't think in, in, in the defense of some of these social media companies, when you have hundreds of millions of, of users, uh, members of your social media platform, I don't think it's as easy as people think to weed out the, you know, the, the five million or the million accounts or whatever it is out of these hundreds of millions of accounts that are on your, on your platform. It's just not as easy as you would think. You know, obviously, it's something that you have to automate and use uh, maybe machine learning, maybe some artificial intelligence, if, if at all possible. But, you know, you can't have, you can't hire a million people to, I mean, just can't, you can't scale mm-hmm. to re-monitor everything to their, you know, to their defense. And so it becomes kind of uh, interesting, though, when, you know, these people use their platforms to influence uh, our elections in a way that's not desirable to us, obviously, and, and, and it really just enrages everybody and turns everybody against each other. So 
There's other and issues. to turn back uh, to, and I'm sorry to, to sure. interrupt, but just to go back to the Mueller report and, and what it described as far as how social media was used, it was used in a really specific way where um, you had these prominent accounts that were actually taking a key role in organizing live events. So you, you now have this convergence of uh, these social media accounts that are just, you know, they might just be troll accounts just spinning out. Um, but now they actually they actually started uh, organizing events, um, including events that might have had some sort of white supremacist overtones to them, meant to you know cause some even more incitement and incitement in in the real world. And I think that you can see where the danger you know uh, can can spread in in many different kinds of ways if you are, have that ability to take what is just a social media account and turn it into real live action. Um, but I, you're exactly right. It is very difficult and it's whack-a-mole. And what else do we need to do to try to get a handle on this problem? Yeah, so it's something that uh, I think that is, is, is still a problem. And we're going to see how this plays out. And I, and I hope the government doesn't go, you know, overreach with the regulatory actions against these people. Sure. You know, I just, and that's typical no matter what industry it is, no matter, you know, whether it's finance or energy or whatever, it seems like they're always overreaching when something happens, right? Let's turn our attention to Huawei for a second. And this is a big issue on the show here. And I, you know, I just, this kind of thing, uh, I find you know, very interesting. I don't understand a lot of why our, our five eye partners are not a lot of them, but you know, at least, at least one, maybe two, um, refuse to listen to us and, and cooperate with us and understand the threat that comes from Huawei. But it, no one really heard of this company until a few months ago. They're huge, though. They're, they're a huge company, enormous. And now they're just getting a lot of, a lot of headlines. So can you, let's break it down. Let's, let's just benchmark this. Let's unpack it a little bit. What are they really accused of? So they've been accused since about 2012 of the company itself, now Huawei, um, founded in China, um, has been, they sell about 50% of their products um, to the Chinese marketplace, which is why they haven't been the, the big name here that um, they could have been. They also not have been a big name here because what they're accused of since about that, that 2012 timeframe is a really long-term relationship with the communist government in Beijing, uh, whereby the government and Huawei have conspired in some way um, to create this um, technology equipment that may someday have the capability of spying on the countries um, to which it's been sold. So uh, you have equipment that is used for networking that is really a part of uh, the deeper layer of infrastructure. Um, and, and that is where the U.S. government has, has had, has been, having a great deal of pause for a very long time. So they've been floating to starting with government agencies going back about 10 or more years to not use the Huawei products because it's just too risky and they have, um, they say, classified evidence that this, this isn't going on. So is the concern from the United States justified? And that's a good question. I did, um, I did an interview with... Um, Two gentlemen who you'll know, I, I know you certainly um, would know uh, Secretary Michael Chertoff, um, who was uh, the DHS secretary um, in you know, several years back. Um, we discussed Huawei. He was really adamant that uh, even if these links haven't been explicitly spelled out by um, the intelligence agencies, uh, which is one of the frustrations of, I know, the, the Huawei and some other folks um, will say that they've, they've not presented enough evidence. Um, he said that having that level of infrastructure built outside the United States by a country that is somewhat, uh, you know, we're not exactly, um, we're, we're at odds with them, things could get worse, um, they could get worse in the future, that having that much stuff um, tied back to another country is just too risky. Now, Huawei says the United States um, does allow other, other uh, technology companies, uh, Nokia and, and Ericsson, um, to do business here. We have a risk mitigation process in place. They want the United States to put in a similar risk mitigation process. But, but going back to what the Trump administration has said and um, what, what Secretary Trudeau said, uh, it doesn't matter if risk mitigation is in place. 
it's still just too risky. So as you can see, there's, <laughs> there's never going to be a meeting of the minds here. It seems like we're going to be um, down this road for a long time with Huawei. Yeah, and I think the risk is substantial. I mean, at least my, mm -hmm. that's my opinion. I do think the risk is substantial. I have to agree with Secretary Chertoff, who's also mm -hmm. uh, been a former guest of this show. Yeah. And I, um, uh, I, just, I just can't, I just can't, I can't see it. I can't see accepting that risk in any way. Um, I think there have been some, some evidence of, of um, some issues. We might dive into that a little bit deeper in future episodes. Yeah. But what's Huawei's position on this? You said that, hey, look, you're, you haven't really showed us the, the evidence on where we're, the misdeeds yeah. are going to take place. <laughs> so I mean, what, by evidence, I mean the evidence, uh, the, the solid evidence, I guess, of this, the grand conspiracy here, which is that there is a direct correlation between what Beijing wants to do and what Huawei will do for it. Huawei said, absolutely not. We'd rather shut down the company than uh, take orders from the, to spy from uh, China. Um, the United States has said kind oh, of the essentially, essentially, yeah, come right. On. Um, on. <laughs> you would, you would take their orders. Um, and I'm trying to maintain my middle of the roadness here. <laughs> Um, <laughs> I'll let you take, I'll let you take your side. Um, but, but that's what, and then Huawei has said, you know, and, and this is through, and I, I did also interview their CSO who himself was a former cybersecurity official with, with DHS, um, a, a gentleman named Andy Purdy. Uh, and, and he has, he is, he's their chief security office officer for um, the Americas. Um, and he has said that they have uh, tried to get a risk mitigation process similar to either what they do in the UK, where, where Huawei equipment is used, um, or what we do in the United States for some other um, some other foreign-owned companies. Um, he says that the United States has not been has not submitted to those conversations at all. Um, I mean, I think that I think that you have two different groups that are that are just having two different conversations entirely. They're having a conversation about risk mitigation, and it's unfair. We're having, and by we, I mean the United States and, and, and Secretary Chertoff and the Trump administration are having a conversation saying we, we can't have this equipment ever um, in, in our network. So it's, it's two different conversations. I just don't see it ever resolving. Um, you know, I think we will have a wonderful trade agreement with China before we're doing business with Huawei. I think that's my prediction. Yeah, I think, you know, the, the, trade, the, the trade talks right now are are hot and heavy and they're in the news all the time. And I think, you know, we have these tariffs that are going on. There's a big debate about the, the, you know, the, the value of the tariffs and if they're making it, you know, helping us make any progress in these negotiations. But people often don't think about in these talks about, you know, the trade talks and the tariffs and you know, how cybersecurity plays into that too uh, mm -hmm. with the Chinese government. So how, how, how does that issue arise and, and what kind of role does cybersecurity play with all these conversations with the Chinese government? There, well, there have been a few things that have been major sticking points for the U.S. for some time, as you know, and I think we've, we've even talked about it on the show before, but um, sort of two things that are overlapping a little bit. There's, there's the issue of technology transfers or what some, uh, you know, what U.S. companies would call forced technology transfers um, in which you, in order to do business in China, um, you have to give up, you know, source code or other information. Um, under uh, the auspices of the, the Chinese cybersecurity law uh, that exists there. So, you know, we have to make sure that your source code is safe, so you have to give it to us. Um, there's, there's that. Um, and then <laughs> there's the issue of um, the just for many years, there being a great deal of intellectual property theft and hacking coming from China to the United States, whether that's, you know, attributed to criminals um, who are living in China or of Chinese origin or uh, the Chinese government. So um, there's sort of those two things that are going to be a part of these trade talks. Um, the Obama administration did make an attempt to end the IP theft themselves. Um, that has sort of broken down, uh, especially as the Trump administration has taken over. Um, that at least, you know, it, it seemed to have slowed down. Now it has seemingly ramped up, at least according to the sources I've talked to. No, I guess the Chinese promised that they wouldn't, you know, continue the, this um, theft, massive theft of intellectual property in the United States. And of course, mm -hmm. you know, some people believe them. Um, mm -hmm. So it's, you know, it's still, that, that's amazing to me. I guess if you've really educated on the level of effort that the Chinese government is going through 
over a period of many, many years and the strategy they put in place really to become the world's superpower and how they're going to do that is uh, once you educate yourself on what's really going on in the world, and, and it's just, uh, at least with, with the Chinese government, what they're doing, then it's hard to believe any of this stuff, really. Uh, it really does. It really becomes really difficult to believe. Maybe I'm biased because I worked in the government and I, you know, it was Right. And that's a really, and so that is the, you know, what most, I would say, is, is the predominant opinion amongst people who have worked in the government, whether it's intelligence agencies or like you, the Secret Service, um, that, that is the, the predominant opinion. And when they, when people see things like, you know, this agreement on intellectual property theft, um, kind of going into effect, uh, being, working, working positively, and then just being dialed back as soon as there's a little bit of trouble, um, I think that that's where you have a lot of critics saying, well, then how can we say we did a risk mitigation process on Huawei's equipment and it was fine and it's not going to be, it's going to continue to be fine in the future. Um, it's, it's that like long-term trust that just does not exist. Um, and it's going to be causing problems like this for a very long time. So Huawei deals in a lot of 5G products. So what's their role in, in 5G and why are, we, why are we so worried about it and, and the security of 5G and the, and the future of communications here? So, you know, 5G, it's, it's going to be very interesting um, what, what happens next. Um, as you know, I'm sure you've talked about it on the show a couple of times, that, that 5G, the promise of it is to bring even more of our devices online as if we needed it. <laughs> um, but we're going to, uh, you know, more and faster. Um, and you have a lot of countries that, uh, you know, Germany is one that has, has seemingly um, said that they'll be comfortable using um, Huawei equipment or equipment m made in China. And they're also a little bit ahead of us on, on the 5G technology. So um, I think that you do have a scenario where as Europe builds out 5G and, you know, when you put in a certain kind of equipment, especially if it's Huawei equipment and, you know, you, you need to um, upgrade it at a later time, it's much easier to just continue upgrading it to the same to the same kind of equipment. So I think you'll see they already have a very significant market share in networking equipment in Europe. Um, I think you'll see that only grow. And as we don't have any, and we're in fact getting rid of even the very minimal amount of Huawei equipment here, we're going to have two um, you know, concurrently built out 5G uh, systems. And I'm going to be very interested to see how those actually interact with each other. Um, and you know, when we connect in to uh, our partners in Europe, um, is there anything that we're going to be concerned about? Are they going to have security issues that we won't have? Are we going to have security issues that they won't have? Will we be able to share information with them like we were before? If we're, if we're afraid, as, as this administration has said, that, uh, that this Huawei equipment is used for spying, are we going to be able to have classified conversations over networks in Europe? It's, it's, really interesting questions that I think have yet to be resolved. Yeah, and I think that's the, that's the big question, right? Are we going to be able to even trust our allies with information now and sharing with them if they're using these products that we won't use in our own infrastructure? And I'm not mm -hmm. sure how we can go ahead and do that and say, yes, we're going to send the information, you know, sensitive, critical, confidential information uh, over these networks mm -hmm. to you that you use these networks, right? And, but we're, but we're, we're going to prohibit them from being used in our country because we don't trust them with the same information. That makes right. no sense and to me at all, right? And so I don't think we're gonna do that, and that's a big problem, no? Absolutely, and no, no matter, and I think no matter what, um, you, uh, no, no matter what side of this you're on, if you are on your side, George, you're firmly planted on the, I don't believe them, I don't believe they're, they're going to do this right, I don't believe they can change, um, or if you're on the side of like, a benefit of the doubt, I don't always believe the intelligence agencies, no matter what, you know, it is going to be extremely difficult to have those conversations if our position, even if just our position is that we don't trust the equipment, then how can we go and publicly um, have the collaborative efforts and the collaboration that we did before? I think that's something that's concerning a lot of people, um, especially on the intelligence side. Right, right. So in your new book, mm -hmm. I talked about in the opening segment, Kingdom of Lies, you spent a lot of time with some cyber criminals. They're out there. What did you discover about these people? So that's interesting, but it's a good transition too, because um, my focus for the last few years as, as I've been writing this book ha has been on like really 
keenly looking at the actual individuals uh, who are either cyber criminals or um, on, on your side of things, George, who are the, the cybersecurity professionals and what their day-to-day -day lives are like, the, the kind of harrowing things they have to go through, um, how they got to where they are, how they get out of where they are if, if they're criminals. Um, you know, one thing that, that, that really surprised me um, as I began kind of meeting people who are in the criminal underworld um, is how many of them really desired to just have kind of a regular cybersecurity job. Um, and they had somehow stumbled into um, this, this very you know, negative experience, um, either because out of necessity, because they needed money, um, because it was very thrilling and they were young and stupid. Um, and that was just a running theme. I mean, there were a couple of people who I, I discussed and who um, you know, I, I got to know through their friends and their, their contacts um, who were just total sociopaths, right? <laughs> like those people yeah. definitely exist. Um, but you know, there's also another side of it where um, you know, there are people who have really good skills that, that those can translate into the real world. And I think that that's an important story to tell too. So despite the obvious, like, obvious uh, I guess, explanations, what do you think that what motivates people to either become a cyber criminal or to become a cybersecurity professional or, or sometimes these people actually are both? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And I think, I think in our careers, you know, we've all met um, people who maybe when they were in high school or something uh, were just a little bit, you know, and I'm not talking about hardened cyber criminals, okay? I'm not talking about people who were shutting down Baltimore with ransomware, um, who did things that were a little bit bad here and there. And then they went into the field because it was just, you know, this is the technology they understood. They knew how to beat it. They could become, you know, red teamers, they could become uh, ethical hackers, whatever you want to call them. Um, but what, what motivates, I mean, I think it's the same thing that motivates most criminals. Um, boredom, uh, there's so much um, of this sort of, I, I, would, I would call it like uh, cyber criminal activity, but in a, you know, it's almost like kind of a teenage, um, truancy sort of thing that, that I see happening in, in much of Eastern Europe, where to get one of the, you know, there's, there's not a lot of legitimate employers, but there's a ton of infrastructure around the criminal cyber activity. Um, and it's very easy to make a lot of money to not get taxed on that money, to not have to worry about the police because they're not policing this stuff. Um, and, and that's really attractive, I think, to uh, some people who are just, they have good computer skills, they want to make money, and there's no, you know, huge Microsoft campus, or there's no giant Google facility for them to go attempt to get a job at, and it's just, you know what, I'm going to join this collective, and I'm going to try to make as much money as I can, and it's, it's you know, it's very antisocial, but I think that's what it is. So also in the book, you discuss some senior cybersecurity practitioners in, in the in the uh, private sector, who are not very effective at their jobs. I mean, how big of a problem is this? Well, you can tell me, <laughs> George, um, how big of a problem it is based on your experience. Um, but uh, you know, I think um, I I think I, I've, so I've I've done. The book ended up with a number of characters. I mean, I'd probably say there's 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 three main characters and maybe like 20 other uh, people who um, I I met and I I interacted with uh, who are featured in there. But there were hundreds of people who I I talked with for this book, um, and the same themes kept coming up time and again. And one of them was um, people who who rise up the ranks in cybersecurity um, who may have received a degree in the field. Um, you know, at, at a certain time, period of time, and have rested on that degree and not updated their skills or their knowledge um, since then and have just tried to make it on leadership skills alone. And then you see people like that in an environment where um, maybe they move from, let's say, a military role to a big bank. They are just not prepared for the politics of the bank. Um, what kinds of attacks they're going to see, the, the bureaucracy and resources they have, which is significantly less than you would have in, in the U.S. military. Um, and it can cause a lot of strife and cause a lot of problems. And I think it can even uh, exacerbate cyber attacks. 
Yeah, I mean, it can have a huge effect on the defense and death posture of a company. And I think this is a really big problem. And I was always wondering, you know, what the masses thought about the talent at the top, right? Because they seem to be playing mm-hmm. musical chairs right now. They just go from one place to another. They last, you know, 24 months and then they go to another job. And then, and it seems to me too that the boards, you know, they, they put the, the weight, I guess, on, on the, the, the title of CISO across the entire board, right? So yeah. when I say board, I mean the entire marketplace of cybersecurity. So if you're a CISO of 12 or if you're a CISO of 1,200, it doesn't matter. You were a CISO, we'll consider you for this position, which is just completely ridiculous, I think, in my mind. I mean, all CISOs are not created equal, not even oh, close, right? And so I, I mean, think it, it's a big problem in the industry and how boards and executives view their selection of people for these jobs. Absolutely. And I, you know, I, I had this conversation with um, Brett Arsenault, who's the, the CISO of Microsoft. And it was a very interesting conversation because he um, has been in that role for more than a decade, I believe. I'm kind of going off the top of my head, but has been at Microsoft for like 30 years. So, as you know, that is so rare. And it is his depth of knowledge and his understanding of the fact that like, yes, he's, he talks to the board, but he has people at, you know, who are doing product stuff that are there it's a totally different job product security and security engineering and and all the different microsoft products and then all of the different towers within the company um and you know he was just this really humble guy and i thought this is really amazing because you see so many people moving in and out of this as a role really short term don't get a feel for where they are and having that feel for the company you're working for is just so critically important. I think that they're really overlooking that part of it. Good stuff. So, okay, folks, we've got to take another short break to hear from our sponsors, but don't go away. We'll be right back with more from our special guest, CNBC cybersecurity reporter, Kate Fazzini. Whatever you do, don't go away. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Account takeover is the fastest growing form of cyber attack. Criminals exploit compromised accounts for financial gain, often causing irreparable and long-term damage to finances and reputation. Many companies think they're protected. They believe using a password manager, multi-factor authentication, behavior-based technology, password rotations, or solutions that scan the deep and dark web is enough. Yet the account takeover problem only continues to get worse. SpyCloud combines human intelligence and automated technology to prevent account takeover for your customers and employees. We recover stolen credentials early in the account takeover lifecycle before the credentials are sold on dark forums. Check your exposure for free at spycloud.com. As CISOs manage known malware attacks, they also contend with the unknown unknowns. With 24-7 hacker innovation, where do CISOs place their next security investment bet? Find the answer with Signet. With forums and public and private partnership dinners in Toronto, London, Singapore, Tokyo, and across the U.S., Signet is a mission-focused, purpose-driven global community advancing the next generation of cybersecurity solutions. As an entrepreneurial ecosystem super connector, Signet brings innovators, top cybersecurity professionals, solution providers, investors, and government executives into a collaborative alliance. Join Signet's global community to empower your organization and the industry to defeat hackers with cybersecurity's next generation of innovation. Learn more at security-innovation.org or Google Signet, S-I-N-E-T. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for the keywords voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for voice America. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. 
Again, that's Task Force 7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Ritas. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. We're back with our special guest, CNBC cybersecurity reporter, Kate Fazzini. So, Kate, uh, also in your book, I wanted to talk to you about something. You suggested that there's many more people out there that are qualified to do cybersecurity jobs than realize, than than people realize. And and so uh, I want to know what you meant by that, because this is a very, very interesting discussion to have, especially with the talent war, and we talk about it all the time here, and there's so many jobs open. So uh, what about that? What say you? And I think there's, uh, for one of the things I talk about in the book is a lot of the gatekeeping around these jobs. And and what I mean by that, gatekeeping is a word that's become kind of loaded, but it's... You know, a lot of people in the field um, will speak in terminology that people can't understand. And when you hear somebody who's who's steeped in their cybersecurity job um, trying to interact with somebody who's not, it sounds like it's a way more complicated, like brain surgeon level job than it probably needs to. And so, you know, one of the things that I thought to do with this book was to describe how the average person fits into the scenario, and then you know, have people start thinking about, well, you know, I do a technology job already, or you know what, I'm a really good project manager. Um, and if I learned a few cybersecurity skills, or even like the, the, the lingo, or the terminology, and plug that in to my project manager skill set, then I have, you know, this wonderful career ahead of me in cybersecurity. I think there are so many people out there who have skills that are uh, that apply to the jobs that, that are open out there um, that are very difficult to fill with just a little pivot, um, a little bit of education, uh, a little bit of the right education. And, you know, this is a really lucrative career and it's a really rewarding career. And I want to um, make people see it as more approachable. I mean, what, what are some of the jobs that, that in your career you've had the hardest time filling? Like, what are the, what are the skills when you really get down to it that, that were the most important skills? So I think leadership in, in the cybersecurity space is a, is a, big, is a big issue. Um, I think there's a, and I think that's why you see a lot of deputy CISOs right now, and I think that's a smart thing is because you can't have everything you want in a CISO these days. I think it's practically impossible to have one person that needs all the skills that you need in a CISO. But in, in positions, uh, in my experience, in my past uh, in former employers, what I used to tell people was this. You know, when, when people are me, like they were hiring um, – uh, other folks, maybe whether it be VPs or AVPs, I'd say, look, it, don't expect that person to speak the language of the business exactly. Like, you know, and, and look at what they, what kind of skills they have, what kind of transferable skills they have that you can actually use and teach them. Now, I think what the problem is that there's just a lot of managers out there that are lazy. They want to hire someone that's going to come in and even and talk the specific language of the company and be able to know that, talk about the different uh, lines of business, what business units are there, what they do, how they operate, what the process is. They want to get as close to that as possible. Because God forbid they have to teach anybody anything, right? And that, that, that they just feel like it's just a waste of time for them, and they want to, they're looking for that perfect person. So when you said, hey, look, I have some project management skills or maybe some communication skills, and if I learn, you know, if I learn a few things, I can probably contribute to the, to the cybersecurity cause. I don't think that's the general consensus at all. And I think as the higher you go, it just gets to a personality contest, right? And, oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. It's just like this with anything. No, it's just with life, right? But, and, and, and yeah, I guess, I don't know why, but it just seems to be, um, you know, getting worse and worse in the cybersecurity space as the musical chairs keep happening. But, yeah. yeah. But, I mean, I just find that, you know, teaching managers, right, to not expect people who come in and apply for these jobs, I mean, look for, you know, look for the uh, intellectual curiosity. Right for the leadership skills, communication skills, people that can talk, build strategies, you know, get the job done, execute, you know, on certain things. Uh, instead, they'll just they look at their job description and they'll expect the person to speak exactly. And by the way, some of these HR systems, I mean, they're just you know, they are the same way. Right. I just read an article for, uh, by someone on LinkedIn that basically said, if you're applying to jobs online, you're really wasting your time. <laughs> right. But, but how does that play into what you're talking about? 
That's well. That, that's that's really funny. I mean, I I immediately thought when you you talked about speaking the language and speaking the specific language of you know my time um, at J P Morgan Chase when we called the 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 role of CISO was a CISO. Everybody used that word, and I went um, I, after that. I went to Promontory Financial Group. Uh, I worked as a consultant, um, and I worked for a gentleman named Gary Owen, who's now uh, the 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 CISO at Time Warner. And he said, "It's not it's not CISO." I don't know where you heard that. <laughs> it's CISO. And so, you know, it's, it's things like that, but, um, yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's not just the terminology itself, but, uh, and Gary's wonderful, by the way, um, but he, he, you know, it's not just the terminology itself, but it's, it's like exactly how the manager views that this, this should be done. And when you rise to the level, uh, that level, that CISO level, and, you know, you've gotten to that point, you like to think maybe, you know, my way is the highway and you're going to have people come in. Um, and I think that managers really have to understand, are, are you teaching them what, what is going to apply in their career to literally doing this anywhere? Um, or are you teaching them the really specific, uh, really, um, you know, narrow way that things are done here? Um, and I think that that's a really important distinction uh, that's just going to help the, the workforce to grow because when you teach them how it's done here, um, they can't go do it somewhere else. Uh, they need to be taught how to do this job really anywhere. And that's going to help everybody. You think it's laziness? I mean, a lot of these jobs that are open, uh, they're open at, the, at a lot of the lower levels, like SOC analysts and things like that. You know where people come in, they enter level positions, and in some in some respects, but they require a lot of these jobs require do require experience. And some of the mid level managers are the ones responsible for um, bringing people in for these jobs. There's hundreds and hundreds of thousands of these jobs open. And um, is it is it laziness? I mean, they just don't want to put the time in. I mean, they're afraid <laughs> of a little work here. You know, I I don't know. I, I mean, I think. Um you know, one thing that you said really struck struck me, and that was execution. Um, the, 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 as as any of the skill sets that you could have to do a cybersecurity job, I think that execution is the one. Um, I don't even know if you'd call it a skill set. It's sort of like a personality characteristic, the ability to actually get something done. Um, I would rather have somebody who had the ability to get something done on my team if in, and, and they were like a pizza delivery man before than to have somebody who's been working in technology for 20 years who does not have the ability to get something done. Um, it's, it's that, you know, I think that that's one of the things that um, you almost can't put into a job description, right? It's like you have, you only learn it once you have the person inside um, unless they have like a huge track record of like closed deals or something. Um, and I don't think it's laziness, but I do think there's a level of arrogance where people are saying, um, you know, it is really hard to work here. This is a really high level organization <laughs> and you it. have to be the best. <laughs> and, you know, it's unless you're talking about like some kind of secret pay grade at the NSA, <laughs> it's not, you're not that special. I mean, I love you guys, but there it is. Right. Right. <laughs> Sorry. I guess uh, once you're an alumni of uh, a certain organizations, when you hear that, you kind of chuckle. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Is there a better way that we can fill the employment gaps going forward? I mean, is there, what's, what's the best way forward, you think? Is there, is there something specific we can change so that we could, you know, fix these problems that we have with the talent crisis? I mean, I think um – you know, we, we just, we, we do have to make education more accessible. And I think there has to be um, kind of a real reckoning of what are the skills that are, so the great thing, let me just back up for a second, because the great thing about cybersecurity jobs, if anybody's listening and they're not in the field and they, they want to be, it's like, it has a plumber-like quality and that, that these jobs are rarely going to be outsourced. They're going to be insourced more and more in the future because we, we just can't outsource our cybersecurity, especially at, at big banks and places like that, to, to China, for instance. Right. Um, we can't outsource these jobs. Um, you know, you're going to have a lot of domestic uh, use for your, your job in the future. So, um, you know, finding out what those skills are for those jobs that are just, we're never going to outsource. And then just hammering them into the curriculum um, of, you know, the, the relevant universities and making it more accessible. Um, I don't know how much a CISSP costs. 
uh, anymore. But I, I mean, I've seen like three, five thousand dollars, maybe some more than that. I mean, yeah. that's you know, is that is that how we want to do it? Like, do you think we can make it cost a little less, or you know, get some programs that are free for for students that show a lot of potential? Because um, they're going to just pump so much more back into the economy. I think yeah, that we, I, we need to find crazy. some way to get this education delivered to more people. That's all. I, I just saw a, a tweet by Jeremiah Grossman and I retweeted. I agree mm-hmm. with him 100%. He was talking about the CISP. When he talks to people with the CISP, they basically say, hey, look, you know, I really didn't you know, learn too much that's going to help me with my technical knowledge. I don't feel confident that I got the return back, you know, that, that I could execute better because of it, but I know I could get paid better because of it, because it's in every job description in cybersecurity on the internet. Right? <laughs> I say, you know, well, like, you know, you have to sit. And so for, for, for them, I mean, it's fantastic. I mean, that's something you know, for them. They, they, they're probably ecstatic about it because now everyone's going out and getting it, whether they really feel like they're getting the value or not mm-hmm. um, is another thing. You know, it's a whole nother. I mean, I think on the job training in cybersecurity is so much more important. Um, you just can't, you can't get it anywhere else. I mean, I know there's some universities that are doing lab-like environments, um, but I don't see the harm in, you know, uh, I know Ernst, Ernst & Young has just said that they're going to relax their degree requirements, but I don't see the harm in saying, you know, you don't need a college degree, um, but maybe we will do four years of uh, on-the-job training. I think that that is, if, if you were really thinking outside the box, that that is a, is a way to do it that, that makes so much more sense because four years of on-the-job training in cybersecurity is, well, you're ready to be a CISO, basically. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. <I'm> <laughs> well, you know, in some places. <laughs> some places. At some places, yes, you would be. You'd be at a startup. Yeah, I mean, or... it's, uh, you know, like, uh, I don't know, there's a lot going on there. Look, we can talk about this forever, but we've mm-hmm. run out of time, man. I appreciate no, you on the show. I really do. I mean, congratulations on the book. I can't wait for the party, by the way. I'll be there. Awesome. Uh, Yeah, awesome. So, look, uh, we'll have you on again soon, I promise. I I can't wait. Terrific. All right. Okay, folks, time to bounce up out of here. Before we go, I want our listeners to visit the Cybersecurity Hub to read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at www.cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio. The voice of cybersecurity. Stay frosty out there. Thank you for tuning in this week to Task Force 7 Radio. To learn more about Task Force 7 Radio, please visit our website at taskforce7radio.com. Be sure to join your host, George Reedus, again next Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. 